Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Father, as we read your word this morning and come to consider this incredibly lofty passage describing our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that it would not only be an academic exercise of understanding the doctrine of Christ, but a personal experience of relating to to the great and glorious King of kings and Lord of lords who has been willing to call us His friends and to bring us close and near by His own blood and by His resurrection that we might enter into the holy place and come before your very presence in his name and have a relationship with the God of the universe. Lord, speak to us this morning, both in our minds and in our hearts, and draw us nearer to you. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we study the book of Colossians together, I think it's important that we be reminded and that we kind of get fixed in our minds uh, why Paul is writing this letter, because it gives us a much better uh, appreciation for why he's saying the things he's saying. So I'm going to repeat myself a little bit as we go along in the hopes that that purpose anchors firmly in your mind. Remember that the Colossians were experiencing false teaching. It was actually threatening to undermine their faith. It was threatening to destroy the gospel and to lead them away from the supremacy and the 
glory of followers of Jesus Christ and, and who He is. And the, the kind of teaching that they were being exposed to is not new. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. And practically anything you can imagine that people have thought, they've probably thought sometime before in some other place and time of human history. And the same is true with the thinking that was going on in these Lycus Valley churches, that they were kind of being uh, pulled and pushed by uh, Judaizers who were Jewish believers that still insisted on the necessity of the Old Testament law being followed as a part of salvation. In other words, they weren't saying it's just important from a lifestyle or a cultural standpoint, but you need to trust Jesus and you need to keep the law in order to be saved. That's one of the things Paul was contending with. Another thing was the idea that in order to connect with God, in order to advance spiritually, you had to have the help of mediators and intermediaries. And these took the form of angelic beings or higher powers that you could connect with somewhere up in the heavenly realm. And you had to uh, use their assistance to advance through the levels and stages of heaven to kind of develop spiritually. There's nothing new about that. Many, many churches today under the umbrella of Christianity mix in a necessity of ritual and liturgy and works as essential in addition to Christ in order to secure salvation. This is not new and it still plagues us today. The idea of having other intermediaries or angelic help or powers or channels that can help us through uh, wend our way through spiritual development is a part of the teaching of New Age ideas. And so the very things that Paul was contending with, you and I face as alternative worldviews every day in our lives. People around us, in one way or another, believe the same things that Paul was contending in his letter to the Colossians. So, on the one hand, this passage has great practical value in terms of helping us to clarify and understand our faith and our hope and trust in Jesus Christ. It has great doctrinal value for us. And doctrine is just a fancy word for teaching has great teaching value for us. But also, it has great personal value. Because as we contemplate the person of Christ, as Paul reveals him here in these verses that, that are some of the loftiest in all the New Testament to, to kind of pull the person of Christ together in one picture, it reminds us of who it is with whom we have a personal relationship. He has our Lord and Savior. He is not abstract. He is not distant. He is not beyond our grasp, but He is the one with whom we walk every day, to whom we pray, with, with whom we live. He is our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ who promised never to leave us nor forsake us. So, who is he according to these verses? Well, last week we looked at just phrase one. This week I'm going to look at the whole rest of the statement. So we'll cover a whole lot more territory than he is the image of the invisible God. But Paul begins by declaring that Jesus Christ is the unveiling, the revelation of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, you study the person of Jesus Christ. You read the Gospels, you study his life. And as Jesus said to Philip, when Philip said, if you would just show us the Father, it would really be helpful. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been so long a time with you and yet you do not know me? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. So everything you've seen me do has been my Father in action. If you know who I am, you know who my Father is. There's an identical correspondence in this regard. In fact, Jesus said in the Gospels, I never act on my own initiative. I only do the things that the Father instructs me to do. And he went so far as to say, I never even speak on my own initiative, but I only say the things that my Father gives me to say. Which is just about everything that happens in a person's life, all of their actions and all of their words. Jesus said, when you see me and you observe me, you have seen my Father speaking and my Father in action. So last week we looked at that that clear picture that Jesus clearly articulates the Father in a way that we can see Him and understand. Someone put it, um, perhaps crudely, but quite succinctly, succinctly, Jesus is God with skin on. And He does. He takes on human flesh so that we can see, in fact, who God is. Then Paul goes on to say, He is the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, in Him all things hold together. And He is also the head of the body, the church, and the firstborn, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He will come to have first place in everything. Twice in this passage, Paul uses the term firstborn. Once, with respect to creation, and once with respect to the church. And it's important that we consider the word firstborn, as it occurs here for just a moment, because this passage is used as a proof text by every group that has promoted the Arian heresy from the 4th century to the present. There was this guy in the 300s A.D. by the name of Arius, And he argued that God was not Trinitarian. He, there was only one person of God. And that Jesus Christ was actually a created being. And that God created Jesus first, or the Christ first. And then through him made all the rest of the stuff. And ever since then, there has always been alive a group that promotes the concept that Jesus is the first created being. In fact, today, probably the the group that you are best acquainted with that still promotes this idea 
are the Jehovah's Witness. And when they knock on your door, if you give them an opportunity, they want to explain to you how Jesus is the first created being. And they will take you to various proof texts in the New Testament to attempt to make that claim. And this is one of the ones that is classically used. So we need to ask the question, and we need to look at the Scripture for an answer. What does it mean that he is the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn from the dead? Well, fortunately, the term is used in other places of Scripture where it clearly does not mean the first in a series of births, but refers rather to first in in rank, or first in uh, supremacy, or in authority, or the one to, to whom everything else looks. Firstborn has to be interpreted in terms of its context. And when you look at the context of the passage, as we'll see in a moment, there's no way that we can read the rest of the story and think that Jesus was created. But before we go even that far... Let's look back at a couple of passages. You don't have to turn to these. They're referenced in your study guide. But in Exodus 4.22, God speaks of the nation of Israel, still presently captive in the land of Egypt, as his firstborn child. Now, when you try to think of that in literal terms, there's no way possible. First of all, he's talking about a whole nation, not one person. That's your first clue that it's not literally the first in sequence. But even if you were to go back in time and take Israel as the father of the nation, you remember how Israel got his name? He was Jacob wrestling with God at the brook Jabbok. And in that wrestling match, God ultimately changed his name from swindler or heel grabber to prince with God. And the word Israel means prince with God. But Jacob was not the firstborn in the Jewish line. Ask any Jew who their father is. Who was the first one? It was Abraham. They're not going to say Jacob or Isaac. They're going to say Abraham. Abraham is our father. Well, why isn't he the firstborn in terms of the sequence? So there's no way in the Exodus 4 passage that God is talking literally about a sequence of birth order. He's talking about the one who is nearest his heart among all the nations. Choose the nations of the earth, God says, and Israel is the apple of my eye, like my firstborn. And in that culture, you understood that the firstborn was really, really special. Uh, I don't know, I think we have some of that uh, carry over a little bit still still in our society and probably around the world. Uh, I hope um, that that delight that you have over your firstborn does not exclude the rest of your children. <laughs> I, I hope they don't get treated as second-class citizens, you know. I remember uh, Stephen's birth, my firstborn, and I was, uh, you know, I was really fearful and, and uh, had a lot of uh, anxiety about becoming a father and all that that was going to be. 
and the responsibility, and I was a little anxious about the whole birth process. You know, I, I'm uh, young enough, but even though I'm old guy now, I'm young enough to have been in that um, period of time where they were training dads in the birthing process and taking them in for the for the birth and being the coach. You know, and uh, we had already been married about 12 years, and I had settled into the idea of not having children. So I was kind of comfortable with that. And all of that is being upended by this pregnancy. But I will tell you something. The moment that little guy appeared, and I could see his face, all of the anxiety, all of the fears, all of the trepidation dissipated in an instant bonding of love and affection that was wrapped up in that tiny little human being that emerged on this planet. He was my firstborn. And he definitely had my affection. Now, I don't love my secondborn any less by any means. And I, I think my boys know that. But there certainly was a, a, a moment that is not replicated <laughs> by any other thing in life than when you have that first child. And God is saying to Moses, Israel has that place in my heart. That's how I view Israel. And the context of it is, Pharaoh, if you don't let my people go, Israel is my firstborn child. And if you don't let my people go, I'm going to destroy your firstborn, quite literally. But in the passage, we see that it speaks of God's priority for this nation called Israel. It has nothing to do with birth order or sequence. Another passage in Scripture that specifically uses the term firstborn is in Psalm 89. I believe it's around verse 27. It's, again, marked in your study guide. But Psalm 89 is a psalm that kind of uh, summarizes the covenant that God made with David as the king of Israel. And that psalm also is strongly messianic. By that I mean that many of the things said about David also uh, prophetically look forward to Jesus Christ. Because Christ, humanly speaking, through the line of David, is going to be the son of David that sits on the throne and reigns forever. And uh, so there's all of that going on in Psalm 89 as well. But in the 89th Psalm, along about verse 27, God says of David, I will make you my firstborn among all the kings of the earth. Now, clearly David is not the first king of Israel. Saul was the first king of Israel. Um, clearly David is not the first king on the planet. He comes along after many hundreds of years of kings and kingdoms. But what God is saying is, I will move you into the position of the number one guy. I will put you in a place as my firstborn over all the kings of the earth. I will put you in a place 
where the whole world will recognize the supremacy of your dynasty. And that's my covenant with you. And actually, the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy, uh, in fact, rests in the person of Jesus Christ, who is, as Luke so poetically tells us, of the lineage of David. Because Christ is the king who will sit on the throne and reign forever and ever. So even in Scripture, we have examples where firstborn does not mean the first in a sequence of children or the first created, but means supreme, number one, holding the focal position. And so it is with that concept in mind that Paul is introducing him here in terms of the argument. And what he's saying to the Colossians who are being distracted by all of these other concepts, you can't do any better than Jesus. You can't outshine Him. You can't have more power. You can't be more supreme. You can't do better than Jesus. He is number one in the universe. And He is number one in the church. And He holds that position by virtue of who He is. With that in mind, we look at the context and we see immediately that He cannot be a created being because the first thing Paul says after this is, for by Him all things were created. Greek scholars go into a great deal of depth here, but suffice it simply to say that all things means all things. <laughs> you don't have to know the Greek language to understand the English language. What's left out of all things? When you say all, and you say things, you're talking about everything that, that there is. All things were created by Him, both in the heavens and on earth. That's pretty inclusive, isn't it? John, who wrote his gospel uh, some 30 or 40 years after Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, going way back, put it this way, In beginning was the Word. This is John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. In beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. One of the fascinating constructions of that first sentence, for those of you that are grammarians, is that the verb was, in every case, is in the imperfect tense, which in the Greek language stresses continuous action in the past time. In other words, in beginning, and it's not the beginning, it's just in beginning. As one of my professors said one time, they left the article out because you can pick any beginning you want. In beginning was always being the Word. He had no beginning. Pick a beginning, He was already there. In beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, John says. Face to face with God. Suggesting equality, 
suggesting intimacy, suggesting fellowship and, and unity. He was with God, and then the strong and powerful statement, and the word was God, always being God. And then he gives us his second verse. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that has been made. Totally inclusive. Nothing is left out. Nothing is excluded. Paul tells us here, John reiterates for us there, Jesus is the Creator God. And you go all the way back to Genesis, and you remember our studies there, as we looked at how God began creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the carte blanche statement. And then we find how He did so. God said. God said. And Jesus is the Word. And through the Word, God created, and Christ is the Creator. This is the seamless truth throughout Scripture. And so Paul holds forth for them. By Him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all have been created through Him. Paul wants them to understand, because the Alexandrian Jews had kind of mixed in some of the Greek um, philosophy with, with Jewish teaching and some of the teachings about the different levels of heaven, and they believed there were seven levels to heaven, and that you progress through those levels depending on the dominions or the thrones or the powers and, and who you connected with as you progressed on your journey. It was a lot of this mystical kind of uh, thinking. And without even engaging the argument, because some people wonder if Paul was even uh, dignifying their existence here when, when perhaps he didn't even believe it. It doesn't matter. The point is, no matter what your thinking is, no matter how many thrones you think there are, no matter how many dominions you think there are, no matter how many powers you think there are, no matter what you think is there, Jesus Christ, if it exists, made it all. And He is above it all. And He has more power than it all. And He reigns supremely over it all. You don't need any other being of any description to get closer to God than Jesus Christ. He is the author of everything. And He has all power. And so Paul wants them to understand that in all of the universe, there is none more powerful, none of higher rank, none of greater significance than Jesus Christ who made it all. And in verse 17, he says, He is before all things, which is another way of saying He was there when it started. And in Him, <coughs> all things hold together. Now, I asked a question in the first hour. I'll throw it out to you. Uh, different translations translate that phrase, in Him, 
all things hold together. See, it's the last phrase of verse 17. Do some of you have a different word rather than hold together in your translation? What, what do you have? Consist. In him all things consist. Anyone else have something different from that? Endure. Okay. It's interesting. Any other translations for this word hold together? Consist, endure. The interesting thing about the word is it has about uh, a dozen different translations. And depending on the context, again, of how it is used, um, it, it suggests different things. But the common ingredient in all of them is the prefix of the word sin or soon. We get our word synergy from that same prefix. The word synagogue also comes from that same prefix that means to, to gather the people together in the synagogue in the, in the place of meeting. Um, the, the idea is that in this section, he's kind of like the glue that makes it all stick. He literally holds the universe together. Now, maybe glue is a bad image to put in your mind because that's gooey and sticky. Um, but but act and it and it dries up and gets hard and craggly. Okay, super glue. <laughs> I don't. That reminded me of something I won't tell you about. It's great for surgery, by the way, super glue is. Um, anyway, he is the one who holds it together. All things subsist. All things consist. All things endure because he is holding it together. Did you know that atomic theory, no matter how far you go, even in the most up-to-date understanding of atomic theory, there's still mystery at the heart of it. And I heard an illustration one time that if you tried to explain the, the orbiting particles around a, an atom by putting the nucleus in the middle and the orbiting particles around it in, in some sort of a, a graphic illustration to which we could relate, it would be like placing a golf ball on the 50-yard line of a football field in the middle. That would be the nucleus of the atom. And the, the particles orbiting around it would be uh, kind of like, uh, you know, BBs running around the track. You know how a lot of football fields have a running track around them. It would be like BBs running around the track. Now, just get that image in your mind for a second. And realize this morning that everything is more nothing than something. Are, are you holding on to that? <laughs> you, 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 the thing is the little golf ball in the middle and the BBs on the track, and, and, and all the stuff in the middle is just nothing. It's space. It's nothing. And what makes that atom hold together? And those things stay in orbit. And what makes molecules or atoms come together to form molecules? And what makes 
them come together to form substances. And what holds it all together? This concept means that Jesus is the one behind the physical laws of the universe, such as gravity. He is the one behind the physics that govern all the properties of the system. And as the writer of Hebrews says, He upholds all things by the word of His power. Not only is He the Creator, He is the Sustainer. And if He were, just imagine with me for a moment, if He were to take a nap, it would all come apart. He holds it together by the word of His power. He is the synergy of the universe. Paul wants us to see that. He says to the Romans in another place, In Him, Jesus Christ, we live and move and have our being. And so, we can do no better than go to the One who made it all and sustains it all and reigns supremely above it all, and in Him we ourselves live and move and have our being. And then Paul introduces us to the second aspect of our faith, that our Lord Jesus is not only Creator God, but He is also the head of the body, the church. Now, Paul does not go deeply into the analogy here that we are members of his body and all of that, but he wants us to understand that with respect to the church, Jesus Christ is the head. And friends, listen, listen. This is so important for us to to grasp. Every single Christian has equal access to the head. You derive your life from the head. You derive your direction from the head. Everything that goes on in my body is governed by the head. And the impulses that it sends, and the directions, and the corrective measures, and the hormones, and all of the things that that cause me to function even when I flail my arms away in wild and crazy ways. All of these things are governed by my head. And Paul wants us to know that Jesus Christ is the head, and we all have this direct connection to Him who is in the first place. I have a role and purpose in the church. I'm a pastor-teacher. Part of my role is to help in shepherding the flock of God along with those who labor beside me as shepherds. And in the teaching role, it is my gift in ministry to stand in front of you on a Sunday morning and explain to you the Scriptures uh, as God directs me and to the best of my ability to bring that out for you, to rely on the Holy Spirit to communicate it to your heart. But you do not need me to have a relationship with God. You do not need me 
to understand what you need to know about the Scriptures. I want to, I want to be sure you understand what I just said. I have a role, I have a function, you need to be in the family. But God has given you the Holy Spirit just as me, and you have resident in you the author of Scripture. And when you need to know something, you can open your Bible in the presence of God and He can speak to you. And you do not need me or any other person in my role in order to speak to God. Or to connect with Him. We are all a priesthood of believers. And we all have direct access to the head, who is Jesus Christ. Paul is stressing here emphatically that Jesus Christ is the only mediary we need between man and God. As God Himself, He ever lives to make intercession for us, and we have direct access through Him. Again, Paul is stressing the fact, you can't get any better than Jesus. You don't need any more than Jesus. He is sufficient. And then he reminds us that He is the firstborn from the dead. Now, He is not the first resurrection in Scripture. Others were resurrected, Old and New Testament. Unfortunately, they died again. Jesus is the only one who permanently came out of the grave. Because He permanently defeated sin, and He permanently defeated death, and it could not hold Him. Colossians chapter 2 takes us into that great arena on the morning of the resurrection and shows us the glory and power of the resurrection triumphing over the powers of darkness. It's an amazing passage. But all he tells us now is that Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead. He is the author of life for you and me. He is the one who has defeated death and and its stranglehold on our lives and has liberated us from its fear. I don't say for a heartbeat that we don't have anxiety. I don't think anyone approaches death knowingly without some amount of trepidation. It's a new experience. It's something we've never done before. It's foreboding in many senses. But friends, for those who know Jesus Christ personally, it is not the end. It is a transition that may be a little uncomfortable for us, but leads our life onward and upward in His presence. Jesus said to Mary and Martha regarding Lazarus, I am the resurrection. I am the life. The one who believes in me will never die. And He is the assurance as the firstborn from the dead that we have life eternal. So Paul wants us to recognize we don't need angels. We don't need channels. We don't need helping saints. We don't need powers and authorities in the heavenly realm. 
We need nothing else to have a direct connection with God than the person of Jesus Christ, who is everything. And Paul concludes this passage that way in verse 18, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And what Paul does not say directly in these verses, but it is implicit and is explained throughout the letter, because we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we have direct access to the seat of power in all the universe and direct access to the head of the church, which is his body, and we need nothing more. It should be a great encouragement to you and to me to know that as we pray and walk with Christ, and, and there are certainly struggles and things that, that we have to uh, wrestle out with God, I'm not trying to oversimplify uh, the, the fact that the Christian life, life in Christ, in this world, on this planet, Jesus said, you're going to have tribulation. There's going to be tough spots. The Apostle Paul was confronted with things that troubled him. And the famous passage of his thorn in the flesh as he wrestled it out. And, and God said to him, you know what, Paul? In this situation, you're actually better off with the thorn than without it. I'm going to leave it because I will show you the perfection of my strength and power in your weakness. I, I don't think that that was just a, you know, a flippant kind of sideline issue with the Apostle Paul. I think it's something he wrestled with. The implication is that he asked God three times to get rid of that thing because he didn't like the answer he got the first two times. And then he finally let it go. So I'm not suggesting that, that, that it's, it's a bed of roses. But it should make a profound difference in our life to realize that the one with whom we walk, the one who has promised never to leave us or forsake us, is the one who sits in the seat of power and authority in all the universe. He knows us inside and out. He holds us as well as everything else together by the word of his power. He is in supreme control, and we can go to him personally and visit with him. And he says, I have called you my friends, and I invite you to come to me. And when it comes to addressing Deity, God. Jesus has bridged the gap, taking on human flesh, rising from the dead, defeating death, and becomes to us the personal one who gives life and brings us into the throne room of God. We can't do any better than Jesus. We have everything we need. And when we work out the issues of life with Him, we have the One who is in position to make the changes that are needed for our lives to accomplish their purpose. 
We're not helpless here. And we're not alone. We have Jesus. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this passage. Encourage us by it. Not only as a great defense of our confidence and faith and hope in Christ, but also in the very personal sense, Lord Jesus, my friend and my elder brother, whom I know personally, you are Almighty God. Thank you for rescuing me and bringing me back home to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.